Europe in the last half of the 19th century was a group of states in competition with each other. Rivalries over colonial and commercial interest intensified, and Europe's great powers divided into two armed camps. Over a period of nearly 40 years, the major powers formed their alliances. It began with the 1879 alliance between Germany and Austria-Hungary, the Central Powers, that regularly renewed and remained in force until 1918. In 1882, Italy joined the Central Powers in a triple alliance. Austria's object was to avoid a two-front war if Russia attacked her. Italy, a newly formed state, wanted assistance if attacked by its old enemy, France. Then in 1888, the world changed. Kaiser Wilhelm I of Prussia died. His son Frederick was also bedridden, dying of cancer of the throat. For 99 days, the new Kaiser was in a coma and made no sign except occasionally to point a finger towards heaven. At his death, his 29-year-old son became Wilhelm II. Wilhelm had been born <coughs> with a deformed left arm. At birth, the doctor permanently damaged Wilhelm's left arm. In addition to its smaller size, six inches shorter than the right, the arm was useless for cutting certain foods with a knife at mealtime. He tried with some success to conceal his deformity, but he knew it was there. He was raised in the shadow of his hero grandfather and told by everyone that he must be a warrior and prove worthy of that bloodline. The hypermasculine military culture of Prussia framed his political ideals and personal relationships. He strutted and spoke brusquely with the tone he deemed appropriate for a Prussian officer. At the age of four, while attending England's Edward VII's wedding, his 18-year-old cousin, Prince Alfred, charged with keeping an eye on the child, told him to be quiet. Wilhelm drew a knife and threatened Alfred. When Alfred attempted to subdue him, William bit him on the leg. Tsar Alexander III detested Germany's new ruler, as did Edward VII. No one could restrain Wilhelm's saber-rattling and martial strutting. He thoroughly enjoyed his title of Supreme Warlord. The Kaiser's image over Europe, at once comic and frightening, did more to spread alarm than Germany's total armament program. He had a dysfunctional relationship with his parents, especially his English mother. In 1889, he told his mother, an English doctor killed my father and an English doctor crippled my arm, which is the fault of my mother. With his throne, he also inherited the great statesman, 73-year-old Otto von Bismarck, who he described as a boorish old killjoy. Both men were egoist. As some wits said, Wilhelm wanted to be the bridegroom at every wedding and the corpse at the funeral. Wilhelm also wanted to be rid of Bismarck so he could rule as well as reign. There were many around him who agreed that Bismarck needed to go. Count Baldersee had already told Wilhelm if Frederick the Great had such a chancellor, he would not have been Frederick the Great. For his part, Bismarck did not like the new Kaiser. I have seen three emperors naked. It is not a sight that is inspiring. Wilhelm detested Bismarck and accused him of closing his eyes to the danger threatening Germany from Russia. But the real reason was that Wilhelm wanted to play his own foreign policy game. Germany now refused to renew the Russian Reinsurance Treaty, and Alexander III, on hearing the news, said that against his own conviction, he would now have to seek an alliance with Republican France. In August 1891, Russia and France agreed to consult if either party was menaced by aggression. Seventeen months later, they agreed to mobilize if any member of the Triple Alliance, Germany, Austria-Hungary, or Italy, mobilized. For Europe, mobilization meant a declaration of war. Once Russia became its allies, France bristled with new confidence. Wilhelm realized his mistake and tried to patch things up with Alexander III, but the Russians ignored him. Wilhelm's most important contribution to Germany's pre-war military expansion was his commitment to creating a navy to rival or surpass England's. He envied the power of the British Navy and agreed with his chief admiral 
that Germany could gain diplomatic power over Britain by stationing a fleet of warships in the North Sea. In 1904, England, threatened by Germany's navy, became semi-attached to the Franco-Russian alliance by an entente cordiale with France. In 1912, the two governments agreed that if the general peace was threatened, or if either one had reason to fear an unprovoked attack, they would consult each other and decide what to do. By 1912, Germany, Austria, and Italy were in one camp, and on the other side were England, France, and Russia. By 1914, the major European states believed that their allies were important and that their own security depended on supporting these allies, even when they took foolish risks. Each nation regarded itself as sovereign, subject to no higher interest or authority. Each state was motivated by its own self-interest and success. As Wilhelm II stated, in questions of honor and vital interest, you don't consult others. Such attitudes made war an ever-present possibility, particularly since most states considered war an acceptable way to preserve the power of their national states. The growth of nationalism in the 19th century also led to war. Not all ethnic groups had achieved the goal of nationhood. Slavic minorities in the Balkans and those living in the polygot Habsburg Empire still dreamed of creating their own nations, as did the Irish and Polish. Socialist labor movements had also grown more powerful and were increasingly inclined to use violent strikes to achieve their goals. Some conservative leaders, alarmed at the increase in labor strife and class divisions, feared that Europe was on the brink of revolution. War might well divert attention from internal problems as well as purge the nation of troublemakers. The growth of large mass armies also heightened the desire for war. The draft had been established as a regular practice in Europe by 1914. Only the United States and England were the exception. The military had doubled between 1890 and 1914. Russia's army was the largest, with 1.3 million men. The French and Germans each had 900,000 men, and the British and Austrian armies numbered between 250,000 and 500,000 soldiers. Wilhelm's determination to build a German navy to challenge England began to impress England. It didn't help that Wilhelm, in a flamboyant speech in 1904, styled himself the Admiral of the Atlantic. He also said in a newspaper article that the English were mad as hatters. England began to ask what use Germany had for such a navy other than to break England's sea power. Military leaders drew up vast and complex plans for quickly mobilizing millions of men and enormous quantities of supplies. Count Alfred von Schlieffen's original design for German victory in the West was drafted in 1905 and was more elementary than inspired. By 1912, the plan had become so far altered by Schlieffen's successor, von Molke, that it had become another strategic concept altogether. Schlieffen's plan was blind or indifferent to the political effect of the deliberate violation of a small neutral state. Schlieffen had also written his plan while Russia was reeling from its war with Japan. Schlieffen believed that Russia was finished as a military power, beset by internal revolution. He also felt that the French fortresses at Verdun and Toul on the eastern frontier were too formidable for German forces. Entry through the Low Countries was the better alternative. Northern France, via Belgium, was a level pathway clear of obstacles. It was wide and had every facility needed for rapid deployment and continuing supply of large military forces. Highways, railroads, and canals all streamed in the correct direction. Although the French army needed 250 miles if it went through the Belgian plain, rather than 180 miles from Metz to Paris, the route promised smooth going. The Balkans had struggled to free themselves from Turkish rule in the course of the 19th and 20th centuries, but there now existed a rivalry between Austria and Russia for domination of these new states. 
1914, Serbia, supported by Russia, was determined to create a large, independent Slavic state in the Balkans. Austria was equally determined to prevent this and wanted to keep her own Slavic minorities within her empire and docile. The Serbians were angry that Austria had annexed Bosnia-Herzegovina, but then Serbia acquired Macedonia and Kosovo from the Ottoman Empire and drove out Bulgaria. In 1910, a member of the Young Bosnia Movement attempted to kill the Austrian governor of Bosnia-Herzegovina. He fired five bullets at the governor and then put the last one into his own brain, making him an inspiration to future assassins. Princip, the assassin of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, as we're going to see, spent whole nights at his grave. On June 28, 1914, the heir to the Austrian throne, Franz Ferdinand, arrived in Sarajevo with his wife. Franz Ferdinand was one of the wealthiest men in Austria in his own right. In 1889, the Austrian crown prince Rudolf committed suicide in his hunting lodge. This left Franz Ferdinand the successor to the Austro-Hungarian throne. He had an excessive fondness for trophy hunting with over 300,000 game kills. He was invited by the governor of Bosnia and Herzegovina to watch troop maneuvers. June 28th was also his wedding anniversary. His wife had been Countess Sophie Chotek, child of a noble but obscure Czech family. She was lady-in-waiting to the Archduke's cousin when they met, and they kept their romance a secret, until one day Franz Ferdinand dropped the locket on the tennis court. Unaware that he had lost it, the Archduke's cousin opened the locket and found Sophie's picture. Scandal ensued. Franz Josef was outraged by his nephew's choice of a wife, believing her too beneath an Austrian Archduke's station. To be eligible to marry into the Austrian royal family, a bride had to be a princess. But Franz Ferdinand would not marry anyone else. The two men argued about the marriage for one year. The emperor finally consented, but Franz got only half of what he wanted. Sophie would be a morgantic wife and have no rights to her spouse's title or his rank. France was also compelled to renounce his children's rights of succession. Neither the emperor nor most of the royal family attended their wedding. The marriage was a great love affair, producing three children, but the humiliation and bitterness lasted. The Habsburg court in Vienna snubbed Sophie and did what it could to belittle her. She could not appear public beside her husband, ride in the royal carriage, or sit in the theater's royal box. At court balls, he led the procession, but she was placed behind the last princess of royal blood. She was forced to stand far down the line, separated from her husband. In Sarajevo, far from Vienna, she would be treated with royal honors. It was the perfect anniversary gift. Ironically, Franz Ferdinand believed that the Slavs should be given a comfortable, fair, and good life instead of being trampled on. He advocated a cautious approach to Serbia, believing that if Austria-Hungary treated Serbia harshly, it would cause an open conflict with Russia that could ruin both empires. Franz Ferdinand was planning on combining the Slavic lands within the empire into a third crown when he became emperor. The assassin was 19-year-old Gavrilo Princip, a member of Young Bosnia, which was five Serbs and one Bosnian, and one of a group of assassins organized and armed by the larger Serbian um, Bosnian terrorist cell, the Black Hand. They wanted Austria's Hungary's South Slav provinces to be combined with Yugoslavia. Serbia had armed and trained them with access to weapons and a clandestine network of safe houses and agents. Dismissing the idea of assassination attempts, the chief of military security told the royal couple, do not worry, these lesser breeds would not dare to do anything. But a Sarajevan police officer disagreed. 
security measures on June 28th will be in the hands of Providence. As the motorcade proceeded past two of the young Bosnian assassins, a third, Kabrinovic, threw a bomb at the royal couple. The bomb detonated behind them, injuring the occupants in the following car. At arriving at the town hall, Franz angrily shouted at the mayor, So this is how you welcome your guest? With bombs? The royal couple insisted on visiting the injured in the local hospital. A member of the Archduke's staff warned him this might be dangerous, but the governor quickly said, Do you think Sarajevo is full of assassins? The men decided Stofi should stay behind, but she argued, As long as the Archduke shows himself in public today, I will not leave him. Unfortunately, their driver made the wrong turn, and as he backed the car up slowly, he moved past Princip, who was standing on the corner. Princip jumped on the running board, drew his pistol, and shot Sophie in the abdomen, and then shot Franz Ferdinand in the neck. A thin streak of blood, and then a gush shot from Franz's mouth. Sophie cried out, For heaven's sake, what happened to you? And then sank from her seat. Despite the bullet in his neck, Franz leaned over his wife, saying, Don't die, Sophie, live for our children. The Archduke's aides attempted to undo his coat, but realized they needed scissors to cut it open. The outer lapel had been sewn to the inner front of the jacket for a smoother fit. They asked him if he was suffering badly, and in a weak but audible voice he said, It is nothing, several times. He began making a violent choking sound caused by the hemorrhage, and he died within minutes. Sophie died en route to the hospital of internal bleeding. Franz Josef appointed a new heir presumptive, who he liked better than Franz Ferdinand, and said to his daughter about the couple's death, For me, it is a great relief from a great worry. All of the assassins were eventually caught. Anti-Serb rioting broke out in Sarajevo. The police and local authorities did nothing to prevent anti-Serb violence. Two Serbs died, and over 1,000 houses belonging to Serbs were destroyed or pillaged. The conspirators were charged with conspiracy to commit high treason, which carried a maximum sentence of death. The assassins spent the trial trying to put the blame on themselves and deflecting it from Serbia. Because they were all minors, they could not be sentenced to death. Instead, they got sentences ranging from 10 to 20 years for their crime. Princip and the conspirator who threw the bomb, Kabrinovic, died of tuberculosis while in prison. The murder of the Austro-Hungarian Empire's heir and his wife produced widespread shock across European royal houses, and initially there was much sympathy for the Austrians. Ordinary people did not really care about what happened, and on the evening of the assassination, crowds in Vienna listened to music and drank wine as if nothing had happened. Within two days of the assassination, Austria-Hungary advised Serbia that it had to open an investigation, but the Serbian Secretary General of Foreign Affairs replied that the matter did not concern the Serbian government. After conducting its own criminal investigation into the assassination and verifying that Germany would honor its military alliance, Austria-Hungary issued a formal letter known as the July Ultimatum, reminding Serbia of its commitment to respect the great power's decision regarding Bosnia-Herzegovina and to maintain good neighborly relations with Austria-Hungary. The letter contained 10 specific demands concerning Serbia's anti-Austro-Hungarian efforts and warned that if Serbia did not accept all the demands within 48 hours, it would recall its ambassador from Serbia. After receiving a telegram of support from Russia, Serbia mobilized its army and accepted only two of Austria's demands. Serbia's response was published by Austria-Hungary, which then broke off diplomatic relations. Serbia mobilized its army and crossed into Austro-Hungarian territory. Austria-Hungary then declared war and mobilized its army to face Serbia's. Under the secret treaty of 1892, Russia and France were also obliged to mobilize. 
At first, Russia partially mobilized along its Austrian border, but on July 30th, Russia ordered a general mobilization. Russia's general mobilization set off full Austro-Hungarian and German mobilizations. Although Wilhelm, under pressure from his generals, signed the German mobilization order, he said, You'll regret this, gentlemen. Soon all the great powers, except Italy, had chosen sides and gone to war. On August 3, 1914, Germany wheeled 1.5 million men into line to form seven field armies. Another 500,000 were mobilized on the Eastern Front. Military strength was counted in terms of division. There were 12 to 20,000 men in a division. Two or more divisions made up an army corps, and two or more corps made up an army. Germany's advantage was the fitness of her troops, the realism and vigor of their training, and better armament. Behind Germany's formidable artillery was the strongest armament industry in Europe, centered in the Kruppworks at Essen, a complex of 60 different factory buildings where 41,000 workers were employed. Germany was assured a steady flow of heavy weapons. Austria-Hungary's majority of officers were untrained. The Austrian army's artillery was superb, but the army was far from homogeneous. 75% of its officers were German, but only one soldier in four spoke German. Often a platoon commander could not make himself understood to his troops. Austria consisted of eight nations, 17 countries, 20 parliamentary groups, and 27 political parties. Staff work was slipshod and command control was poor. The French had only 60% of Germany's potential military manpower, and so France drafted all able-bodied men. The French general staff did not trust these citizen soldiers and counted mainly on the active army of about one million men to fight in the short, victorious campaign that everyone expected. But the French had only 300 medium and heavy cannon compared to Germany's 3,500. The French 75-millimeter gun could only slow down enemy infantry and was useless against even non-reinforced earthworks. The French general staff believed that their troops' morale outweighed Germany's firepower advantage. Russia started by fielding 1.4 million men and later built up to a peak strength of about 6 million. Russia had compulsory military service, drafting men at the age of 20 and release, releasing them from reserve duty at the age of 43 after they served an initial service of three to four years. Russia had been humiliatingly defeated in their war with Japan. The Tsar had ordered radical military reforms, but graft and official corruption were widespread. Russia had modern guns, but lacked the, the ammunition for them. Russia also had little or no industry. The Russian officers were superbly trained in drill, horsemanship, and sword and saber tactics. However, there were too few officers for the huge numbers now mobilizing. Russian soldiers were mostly peasants and needed tight control or their discipline eroded. There was doubt concerning England. England had only aligned itself with France because Russia's defeat by the Japanese had left Germany the continent's strongest power. Both the English people and Parliament were indifferent to the Austrian-Russian Balkan rivalry. They were also not fond of the French, and Germany's financial interests in England were influential. However, by July 29th, the British cabinet was convinced that a European war was inevitable. Britain was a guarantor of Belgium's neutrality, and England could not tolerate the threat of an armed German solidly positioned on the Channel Coast and master of Antwerp. On August 1st, a young German general, a young German lieutenant, crossed the border at 7 a.m. into Belgium and captured the railway station. Within 24 hours, Luxembourg was fully occupied. 
the British cabinet sanctioned the use of the Royal Navy to keep the German fleet from approaching the French coast and made their pivotal decision to intervene. On August 2nd, Germany demanded free passage for her troops through Belgium. Waiting until the last minute, the Belgian government defiantly refused. The Belgian king responded, Belgium is a nation, not a road, and he warned they would resist any invasion. Belgians believed their refusal would compel Germany to reconsider rather than risk world condemnation. On August 3rd, the Belgian king appealed to England's king for diplomatic support. The British ultimatum to Germany came on August 4th. Either Germany halted its invasion or England would be at war by midnight. The British army was 125,000 well-trained, disciplined professionals, good at marksmanship and night operations, but woefully lacking in command leadership. The British felt that their soldiers were lions led by donkeys. England's authority over the seas was unquestioned, but in England there was no rejoicing or militarism. The British Foreign Secretary, Edward Grey, remarked, The lamps are going out all over Europe. We shall not see them lit again in our lifetime. Lord Kitchener called for 200,000 men to sign up, and in the first month of the war, 300,000 enlisted. About 2.5 million men volunteered to fight in the British Army, approximately 25% of England's eligible men. But Britain was also able to call upon an imperial population of nearly 400 million. Over 250,000 underage soldiers fought in World War I. The youngest British soldier was only 12 years old. He was sent home after the Battle of the Somme at the age of 13. The Victoria Cross's youngest recipient was 16-year-old John Cornwell, who stayed at his post for over an hour, despite receiving a fatal wound. Germany mobilized 13.4 million men. During the war, a total of over 65 million men volunteered to fight in World War I. Millions of civilians also contributed to the war effort in industry and agriculture. England's entry into the war didn't worry the German general staff. They had planned for it and were confident they would smash through Belgium to a decisive French conquest. The Schlieffen Plan required Germany to defeat France in six weeks to avoid a two-front war. England wouldn't have time to get any major forces to France. Few Europeans thought the war would be long. The Germans were expected to win conclusively and quickly, while holding the fighting and damage to a relatively limited area. However, the 66-year-old von Moltke, gloomy Gus, believed it would be a long, wearisome war. Schlieffen's plan did not factor for the superhuman endurance being asked of the German soldier, or the excessive load shifted to roads and railways, causing congestion. Moltke did not want a full-scale invasion of Belgium. He agreed with Schlieffen that Russia's armies would not menace East Prussia until after completing their mobilization, which Moltke calculated would take them at least 30 days and would give him the time to defeat France. Moltke never expected the Russians to throw two field armies at the Eastern Front before they were fully mobilized. Every general staff overestimated its own forces' capability while denigrating its enemy. British leaders ignored any discussion on the effect automatic weapons and increased artillery fire would have on troops. Entrenching spades were no longer necessary and discarded. The French army gave no instruction on spades' use, fearing it would diminish the French army's esprit. The improved machine gun of the 1880s and 90s could fire 600 bullets per minute with a range of 1,000 yards. Few military leaders realized that the machine gun and rapid-firing field gun, when used in combination with trenches and barbed wire emplacements, gave a defensive advantage to those using them. Instead, many leaders looked on the war as a contest of national will, spirit, and courage. The South African and Russo-Japanese wars decimated soldiers who attempted frontal infantry or cavalry attacks on prepared positions. 
yet French military doctrine still called for headlong bayonet charges by infantrymen. The German military, unlike the French, avoided frontal assaults and paid greater attention to training their officers in defensive tactics using machine guns, barbed wire, and fortifications. There were 60,000 Germans attempting to break through to Liege because until Liege was won, the main army could not pour through and traffic would be congested. The Belgians stationed 25,000 men around the city. The Belgian army had 117,000 men, but arms and ammunition were inadequate. Prior to the war, range practice was limited to one bullet per man per week. Belgian demolition crews wrecked bridges above and below the city. Belgian civilians also tried to hurt the German army by cutting telegraph lines, destroying bridges and tunnels, and occasionally taking pot shots at soldiers. The Germans knew speed was essential, so they were prepared to take hostages and burn villages to intimidate the Belgians. German troops were quick to crack down on any real or imagined hostility. Colonel Ludendorff complained about armed resistance from Belgian civilians and ordered German soldiers to execute these civilian snipers without trial. In August of 1914, after a German brigade commander was killed, German troops lined up 150 civilians in the little town of Erschot and killed them. Then they pillaged and burnt the town. The killing was known as Schrecklichkeit, frightfulness, and was used to terrify civilians in occupied areas so they wouldn't rebel. The Germans also butchered a Belgian priest who they accused of instigating resistance. This was repeated throughout the month, demonizing the Germans in the world's eyes for the rape of Belgium. Attacks on civilians became increasingly common as each nation tried to break their opponents' home morale and diminish popular support for the war. Propaganda demonized entire nations and attacked the national characters of enemy people. Using an unwise speech Kaiser Wilhelm gave during the Boxer Rebellion, just as 1,000 years ago, the Huns under their King Attila made a name for themselves, one that even today makes them seem mighty in history and legend, May the name German be affirmed by you. The term Hun later became the favored name for the Germans in Allied war propaganda. The Belgians held out for 10 days at Liege, but by the first week of September, the Germans were 20 miles outside Paris. The German general, von Kluck, swung north rather than west of Paris across the front of a French Sixth Army. Alerted by the first use of French air reconnaissance and radio intercepts, the French General Joffre ordered an attack. On September 6th, reinforced by troops rushed to the front in requisitioned Paris taxis and buses, the first use of motorized troop transport, forever celebrated as the taxis of the Marne, the French slammed into Cluck's overextended army. Cluck swung his forces to the southwest and lost contact with the rest of the German army. The British expeditionary forces rallied with the French, surging into the German front's opening. When Allied attacks failed to dislodge the Germans, each army began a series of flanking maneuvers, known as the Race to the Sea, which left a system of linked trenches protected by barbed wires. The First Battle of the Marne succeeded in pushing the Germans back 50 miles and saved Paris. But the German offensive captured a large portion of northeastern France, a heavily industrialized region which contained much of France's coal, iron, and steel. This was a serious blow to the French war effort. The war quickly turned into a stalemate. Neither the Germans nor the French dislodged each other from the approximately 25,000 miles of trenches that ran from the English Channel to Switzerland. German trenches were built to last, with bunk beds, furniture, cupboards, water tanks with faucets, electric lights, and doorbells. On the Eastern Front, the Russian army, whose proverbial slowness 
an unwieldy organization dictated a cautious strategy, undertook an offensive against Prussia that only an army of high mobility and tight organization could have successfully executed. The Russian army moved into eastern Germany, but was decisively defeated at the Battle of Tannenberg. By August 30th, the Russians were no longer a threat to German territory. They had stumbled from Russia half-armed, and many of them unbooted, their feet clothed in rags. The harvest was not yet ripe, so their artillery horses starved. The German artillery pounded the Russians, and after three days, 92,000 unarmed, emaciated, bone-weary scarecrows fell into German hands. The Russian commander, Samsonov, said goodbye to his staff and walked into the woods. They heard a pistol shot, but no one bothered to search for his body. Russia mobilized over 12 million troops during World War I. More than 75% were killed, wounded, or went missing. Warfare in the Western Front trenches produced unimaginable horrors. A fog of confusion hung over the battlefields when attacking. The combination of noisy machine gunfire and bombardment often caused soldiers to lose their sense of direction, and they went forward carried by the momentum. Battlefields were hellish landscapes of barbed wire, shell holes, mud, and injured and dying men. By the end of 1914, the French lost 380,000 killed and 600,000 wounded. In 1915, France lost, new, launched numerous attacks against the German line, but never gained more than three miles, and it cost them 430,000 men. At the Battle of the Somme, which lasted from July 1st to November 18, 1916, out of 110,000 British troops who attacked the Germans on one day, 60,000 were killed. When the battle finally ended five months after it began, Britain and France had lost more than 600,000 men, and the military situation remained the same. Combat went on for four years. Soldiers carried on despite the countless bodies of the dead and disemboweled men. The stench of decomposing bodies was constantly in the air. Over five million soldiers spent time living in muddy, miserable trenches. There were millions of rats. Many men killed in the trenches were buried almost where they fell, just below the surface. These corpses, as well as food scraps that littered the trenches, attracted rats. One pair of rats could produce 880 offspring a year, so the trenches were soon swarming with them. There was no proper system of waste disposal. Millions of empty food tins went flying over the pot top on both sides of the trenches and available to all the rats in France and Belgium. In the hundreds of miles of trenches, some rats grew extremely large, as big as cats or rabbits. They were so bold they would eat a wounded man if he couldn't defend himself. They took food from the pockets of sleeping men, and two or three rats would always be found on a dead body. They usually went for the eyes first, and then burrowed their way right into the corpse. One soldier described finding a group of dead bodies while on patrol. I saw some rats running from under the dead men's greatcoats, enormous rats, fat with human flesh. My heart pounded as we edged toward one body. His helmet rolled off. The man displayed a grimacing face, stripped of flesh, the skull bare, the eyes devoured, and from the yawning mouth, out came a rat. Sometimes the soldiers tried shooting the rats, but headquarters believed that was a punishable waste of ammo. There were also overflowing latrines, great, big, fat, overfed flies, came from and lived on the dead. There was also terrible lice infestations. New weapons were introduced during the war. Little Willie was the first tank prototype. Built in 1915, it carried a crew of three and traveled at three miles an hour. Tanks were initially called landships. However, in an attempt to disguise them as water storage tanks rather than weapons, the British decided to codename them tanks. Airplanes were used for reconnaissance and fighting. The term dogfight 
comes from the fact that a pilot had to turn off the plane's engine from time to time so it wouldn't stall when it turned quickly in the air. When the pilot restarted the engine, it sounded like dogs barking. Approximately 30 different poisonous gases were used during World War I. In the early days, soldiers were told to hold a urine-soaked cloth over their faces in an emergency. Once the men were issued gas masks, they were washed and rinsed after every attack. If the rinsing water killed the goldfish placed in it, it meant the mass still had poison in them. The Germans released about 68,000 tons of gas. The British and French released 51,000 tons. 1.2 million soldiers on both sides were gassed, and 92,000 died horrible deaths. By 1917, the war that had originated in Europe had become a world war. In the Middle East, the British officer T.E. Lawrence persuaded the Arab princes to revolt against the Turks. The British also mobilized forces from India, Australia, and New Zealand. The United States tried to remain neutral, but it became more difficult as time went on. There was considerable sympathy for the British, especially from upper-class Americans. But in the early 20th, but the early 20th century saw a huge, huge immigration from Russia and Germany to America. The immigrants from Russia were mostly Russian Jews who resented the Tsar and the Russians who had forced them out of their home. German immigrants were also unwilling to fight the country of their birth. England used its superior naval power to maximum effect, blockading Germany. Germany retaliated by using submarines. In 1914, a German U-boat sank three British armed cruisers in under an hour. 50% of all British merchant shipping was sunk by U-boats. Germany built 360 U-boats, 176 of which were lost. At the beginning of 1915, Germany declared the area around the British Isles a war zone and threatened to torpedo any ship caught in those waters. In May 1915, the Germans sank the British ship Lusitania off Ireland, and over 100 Americans lost their lives. British propaganda described the Germans as barbarians for sinking a hospital ship with red crosses on its side. We now know it was carrying 4,200 cases of ammo, and that's the reason it sank in 18 minutes. Americans, however, protested the sinking and forced the German government to suspend their unrestricted submarine warfare. However, in January of 1917, the Germans had to resume using U-boats. They decided on a military gamble. The German diplomat Zimmerman sent a telegram proposing that Mexico attack the United States on its southwest border. In return, Germany would give them the American states of New Mexico, California, Colorado, and Arizona. The telegram was intercepted and decoded by the English, who published it in all the U.S. newspapers. Americans were outraged, and as a result, when the Germans went back to using U-boats, the U.S. declared war in April 1917. American troops did not arrive in large numbers in Europe until 1918, but the U.S. entry gave the Allied powers a psychological boost. Russia's withdrawal in March 1918 persuaded the German military to make their final gamble, a grand offensive in the West. German forces succeeded in advancing 40 miles, just 35 miles outside of Paris. But an Allied counterattack supported by the arrival of 140,000 fresh American troops, defeated the Germans. To increase the American Army's size, Congress passed the Selective Service Act in May 1917. By the end of the war, 2.7 million were drafted. Another 1.3 million volunteered. Even though the U.S. didn't grant Native American citizenship until 1924, nearly 13,000 served in World War I. More than 200,000 African Americans served, but only 11% in actual combat. Most blacks served in labor units, loading cargo, building roads, digging ditches. The Harlem Hellfighters were one of the few black units that saw combat. The French awarded them the Croix de Guerre, 
for their extraordinary acts of heroism. America ignored them. The U.S. also shipped 7.5 million tons of supplies, including 70,000 horses and mules, 50,000 trucks, 27,000 freight cars, and 1,800 locomotives. Animals also served in the war. Dogs were fast, difficult to shoot at, and they also caught rats. More than 500,000 pigeons carried messages between headquarters and the front lines. Groups of pigeons trained to return were dropped into the front lines by parachutes and kept there until soldiers had messages to send back. Germans trained hawks to kill any carrier pigeon they saw. A pigeon named Cher Ami was awarded the Croix de Guerre for her assistance in saving 194 American soldiers trapped behind German lines. She made it back despite being shot through the breast, blinded in one eye, and with a leg hanging only by a tendon. In Britain, killing, wounding, or molesting a homing pigeon was punishable by six months' imprisonment. With the arrival of two million more American troops on the continent, the German high command knew defeat was inevitable. Allied forces began making a steady advance towards Germany. The Kaiser was the commander-in-chief, but he was useful to his generals only as a public relations figure who toured front lines and handed out medals. After 1916, Germany was a military dictatorship dominated by the two generals, von Hindenburg and Ludendorff. In September of 1918, Ludendorff informed the Kaiser that the war was lost and demanded the government sue for peace at once. The military position worsened by the hour. By early October, Germany's last defensive positions crumbled. Fearful that the Allies would invade the fatherland and shatter the German army's reputation, the high command demanded an immediate armistice. They urged the creation of a popular parliamentary government in Germany with a limited monarchy. They believed this would shift the blame for the last war from the military and the Kaiser to the new civilian leadership. On the average, 230 soldiers died for every hour of fighting. Almost 27% almost of all Scots who enlisted became casualties, and at nearly 65%, the Australian casualty rate was the highest of the war. Eight million men died, and 21 million were wounded. In previous wars, most deaths were due to disease, but in World War I, two-thirds of the military deaths were in battle. The U.S. spent only seven and a half months in actual combat, and they lost 116,000 dead and 204,000 wounded. The total cost of the war for the United States was more than $30 billion. The shock of defeat and widespread hunger, female mortality rate rose in Germany from 14.3% in 1913 to 21.6% due to hunger, sparked the revolution that forced the Kaiser's abdication on November 11th. The new German government, the Weimar Republic, signed the armistice. In January of 1919, Representatives of the Allied powers assembled in Paris to draw up peace terms. President Wilson arrived with his settlement based on liberal democratic ideals. In his 14 points, he called for national self-determination, the return of Alsace-Lorraine to France, the creation of an independent Poland, as well as impartial adjustment of all colonial claims. Wilson insisted that this would be a peace without victory and would ensure that a defeated Germany worked with the Allies in building a new Europe. Wilson also urged the formation of a League of Nations, an international parliament, to settle disputes and discourage aggression. Unfortunately, both France and England were looking for security and revenge. Nearly the entire war had been fought in French territory, and France had lost 50% of its young men. Many French industries and farms were ruined. The mines were flooded by retreating Germans. The French prime minister demanded that Germany be severely punished and its capacity to wage war destroyed. Secret treaties doomed Wilson's 14 points. These agreements divided up German, Austrian, and Ottoman territory. 
The Allies had also taken advantage of Germany's preoccupation with the war and lack of naval strength to seize German colonies. They refused to give these colonies self-determination. The war had also aroused great bitterness thanks to propaganda and the huge casualties. Both the people and their leaders demanded retribution in territory and reparations. In June 1919, after months of negotiation, Germany was forced to sign the Versailles Treaty. France got Alsace-Lorraine. Germany was barred from placing fortifications in the Rhine. The Rhineland was occupied for 15 years, and France got the coal-rich Saar region as compensation for its ruined mines. France and England divided Germany's colonies between themselves. The German general staff was abolished, and Germany's draft. The army was now limited to 100,000 volunteers and deprived of tanks and warplanes. The German navy was also capped at six battleships and no submarines. The treaty also left Germany with an open-ended reparations bill. Article 231, the War Guilt Clause, placed sole responsibility for the war on Germany. The Germans unanimously denounced the Treaty of Versailles. In their minds, the war had not ended in German defeat, but in a stalemate. They regarded the armistice as the prelude to negotiations based on Wilson's 14 points. But now, instead of participating as an equal, they were barred from the negotiations. The terms of the treaty they had been forced to sign was humiliating and vindictive, designed to keep Germany weak, both militarily and economically. Germans asked themselves why Germany should lose approximately one-eighth of its territory and one-tenth of its population and bear the sole blame for the war. However, war-weary, torn by revolutionary unrest, desperately short of food, with no economy to speak of, and the Allies poised to invade, the Weimar Republic had no choice but to sign the hated treaty. French General Foch said, This is not peace. It is an armistice for 20 years. <laughs>